So, Jim, we made it. We made it to the end of 2020. That in itself is an achievement, I think. I think it is. It's And it's good to be here, actually. We've had a bit of a challenging year. I mean, the whole world's had a bit of a challenging year, hasn't it? Let's face it, with all sorts of things. Uh, but no, really great. And we've had some fantastic guests, travelled some fantastic paths, I think, to, to get to where we've got to. So uh, really pleased. It's amazing what you can do without actually leaving your, your home office, isn't it? <laughs> It is, it is. And obviously hearts go out to everybody who's you know, had to have suffered in all sorts of ways. But I think a lot of people have uh, reconnected to a number of things, not the least of which to nature. And of course, we've had a lot of, uh, lot of guests who've been talking about what they've been doing, either rewilding or reintroducing species or, or a whole host of things in order to protect our natural environment, which is fantastic. And I think you know, this reconnection to nature um, is such an affirming thing, something that which we all could do with more of. We're kind of turning the clock back a little bit, aren't we? Because about a year ago, you were up in Scotland with. That's the right. That's right. Absolutely. I had a fantastic opportunity to go and visit the Cairngorm reindeer with my very good friend, M, who's one of our guests today. Uh, and just to see firsthand what it is to be walking amongst uh, a herd of, of wild or wild reindeer, which is absolutely fantastic. Superb animals. So we'll be able to talk a little bit about those, I guess. But uh, yeah. uh, no, it's a great experience. So you should really get on with it, actually. I think enough, I of, think so. enough of this I think so. And thank you very much for letting me out of my, my, my little box. My yes, make the most of it. Box. Well, it's, it's an annual event. Jim gets to have the other side of the mic. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And for one time only, but maybe we'll persuade him again next year, my co-host, Jim Hayward. Yay! <laughs> so he's going to, Jim's going to do a dual role today. So not only is he going to co-host, he's actually also going to do all the tech stuff. So, so if we go into tech awry, then you'll have to forgive him. I'm delighted that we're joined by our two guests today. Um, as Jim's just mentioned, we have M Smith from the Cairngorm Reindeer up in Scotland. So M, hi, thanks for being with us. Hi there. And all the way from Vermont, and we've had to wake her up very early in the morning, so huge thank you to um, Judy Schwartz, who's the author of The Reindeer Chronicles. And not only is she an author, but she's also an award-winning journalist who writes on a range of topics, including sustainable agriculture and the need for ecological restoration. So Judy, hello, and thank you so much for being here on Planet Pod. Thank you, my pleasure. So yes, we're mercilessly exploiting the um, festive season to talk about reindeers, but I think there's a, a good reason because they are extraordinary and slightly mythical animals that hold a very special place in many of our hearts, even if we don't actually get to interact with them very often. So I suppose I should start perhaps with you, Em. Can you just describe for us what a reindeer herd sort of is like? You know, the sun has sights and the smells, and they're big, aren't they? They're big animals and they occupy quite a lot of space. Um, yeah, that's a great question. What are they like? So um, a lot of people who haven't come across them would have no idea, I guess. So yeah, that's, that's a good one to start with. Um, I would say they're a very peaceful animal. And yes, they're large, like their the body size is sort of similar to that of a red deer. Um, but they, they sort of hold their heads low. They're very sturdy. They're solid animals. They stick together as a herd. So I guess the most impressive thing about reindeer is often you would never see one on their own. So you always just are you know, surrounded by them rather than um, with stragglers. Yeah, you're, you're sort of immersed in reindeer when you're with them. So that's what's quite, well, lovely. They're very quiet animals. They don't um, moo and bleat like sheep and cows. They would, um, 
they just click along and they've just got a real peaceful air about them. And obviously you would encounter them in beautiful wild spaces, which is again, another speciality. So yeah, a real special animal to be around for sure. And yours are particularly special because they're the only free range, free running reindeer herd in the UK. Um, and they have quite a long history, don't they? And I remember when Jim did his programme last year, he talked a little bit about that. But can you just give us a very brief potted history as to how come we have got reindeer back in Scotland? Because they would have been there traditionally a long time ago. Sure. Yeah. So um, reindeer um, and Scotland. Um, so from in 1952, essentially, they were reintroduced by a Swedish Sami called Mikkel Utzi. And he was taken aback by the appearance of the Cairngorms, the vegetation that he found here in this particular area of Scotland. And he promptly set out looking for reindeer because he was certain there must be some somewhere because it was the exact same habitat as he had left in his home in Sweden. Um, So he was, after a while, told they didn't live here anymore. And he set about with his wife, Dr Lindgren, um, to reintroduce reindeer into this part of Scotland and was successful. So that happened at 1952. And then with several um, consignments of imports and with a lot of close closely um, monitored breeding program, the herd now thrive. And there's approximately 150 reindeer in the in the whole herd. And the number is is kept at that number approximately just to kind of keep within the, what, what the vegetation can provide for the reindeer within this sort of space. So yeah. We, we think 150 reindeer fit here perfectly nicely, but they're managed still today. Yeah. So they've got room to roam and that's about the right size of population given the space. Yeah. And just for people who might not know, what is a Sami? So a Sami is um, a, a Lapish reindeer herder. So before the, the country borders of Norway, Sweden, uh, Russia, even um, the Sami people are the indigenous people who would have lived and worked with their reindeer since the domestication of reindeer. So they're the indigenous people of those nations now, but they existed before the borders did. So they often have um, ranges of where, you know, they will go across across one country to the other or, or what have you. So yeah, their history goes back a long way. Yeah. So they're indigenous to, a, to an area rather than just a one specific country. Exactly. Judy, what drew you to reindeers and why did you decide to start with them as part of your your, your book? Because you talk about so many other things in the book as well, but why were reindeers so important to you in the Reindeer Chronicles? Yeah, so the story of the reindeer, when I uh, came upon this story in when I visited Norway, seemed to encapsulate so many of the themes that I was exploring. And one of those themes was a, a basic misunderstanding that many of us have about the role of animals in the landscape. So once you start to look at nature, you see that nature creates the conditions for nature. So animals like reindeer actually create and maintain the landscapes on which they live. So more specific, that sounds kind of abstract, but most specifically, I was visiting Norway. I was speaking about the global ecology of grazing And when I was there, there was a law case that had captured the nation's imagination. And the the country of Norway was demanding that all of the reindeer herders cull their herds, really drastically cut the number of animals that they had. And one young Sami 
reindeer herder, all of 23 years old, said no, said, if I do that, then I won't be able to continue herding. If I won't be able to continue herding, my peers won't be able to continue. And that will mean that our culture can no longer continue with its traditions. So he kept winning against the government and then ultimately he lost. And that was really heartbreaking. And it also really kind of focused a lens on some of the dynamics that many indigenous communities face within their countries. And one of the ironies is that Norway is perhaps one of the kinder nations to its indigenous mm -hmm. communities. There is, for example, a Sami parliament. Mm -hmm. However, what's happening now is that these far northern landscapes that for a long time, the government was, and business interests were fine to, to leave to the indigenous people. Now they're seeing energy and minerals mm -hmm. and other opportunities up there, particularly as the region warms. And we know that the polar regions are warming at a higher rate than other parts of the world. So this, the Sami people are really concerned. And I focused on that in this chapter and also focused on how the reindeer are actually helping to maintain the tundra ecosystem because of just the ecological dynamics of grazing. And we often don't think about how our animals really do serve the lands where they are. We're not necessarily thinking of an ecological system. And Judy, you also highlight the fact that almost flying against what we would understand to be good common sense that, you know, these animals actually do benefit the environment. The, the so-called experts were saying, no, you need to reduce your herd. And, and it's my understanding is it's quite a significant cull that was being proposed and being, being imposed and not just proposed. Um, you know, so, I mean, th that's a real challenge, isn't it? That you've got people who are indigenous, who understand, who have been living with, with their animals and with the, the, the natural world for a long, long time. And yet experts, so-called experts come in and say, this is, this is actually good. We should do this. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you react to that? How do you give people more power to be able to stand up against that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important question. I think that all of us just, you know, who care about nature, who love animals, to, to really ask a question of how things really work, how, how do ecologies function, as opposed to, well, the experts say this, then it must be that. So just as an example, all right, so I think it's a combination of reductionist science. So when you, it, it makes sense, well, we can only have a certain number of animals within a certain space. And often the research is done in unnatural situations. So if you keep reindeer in a limited space when they're used to moving, then you may not get a realistic picture of how reindeer function on the landscape. Okay, so I think it's a combination of reductionist science, and that's only one example of reductionist science. And then a matter of convenience. So there's an interesting term that some Sami people have, have raised, and I think it's worth mentioning that. It's called green colonialism. So 
Okay, for example, Norway is probably the world's leader in hydropower. And so they want to be, and many areas that are attractive for hydropower are in Sami territory, in the large province of Finnmark. So the Norwegian government wants to exploit this area for hydropower. So where green colonialism comes in is we want that land and we should have that land because it's for clean energy. So there are a lot of very subtle dynamics that undermine the capacity for indigenous people to maintain control over their landscapes. And that goes further. It's not just the landscapes, it's their capacity to live the life that they have been living for thousands of years and also their own food ways, their food security and food sovereignty that are at stake here. And I saw this in many places throughout the world and wanted to highlight the the importance of this because we're seeing more and more that indigenous communities hold wisdom that we desperately need right now about how to live in harmony in whatever landscapes we happen to be in. Judy, we've been throughout this autumn on the pod, we've been talking about climate justice. And, you know, this is a classic example, isn't it, of, a, of, a, of, an, of an Indigenous people who have a way of life that is actually beneficial to all of us in the end, not just to themselves and their immediate landscape. And, you know, the issue of justice and the, the freedom and justice that those people deserve has is really brought to the fore. But I'm fascinated when you talk about that, that clash between a green alternative, which is green energy, and we all know Norway have a very good reputation for green energy, for, for you know, hydro and, and, and wind as well, um, coming against the needs of an Indigenous people. And that's a very difficult circle to square, isn't it? Because it's two seemingly powerful um, environmental arguments coming up head to head. Yes, I agree. And also, I think that we need to just, you know, be open not just be swept away by the term green. Mm. We know that there is greenwashing. We know that there are green offsets where a company may pay for a project that looks good only to shield them from scrutiny about actions in another part of the world that is not so benign. So I think that, yeah, and, and I also think that in terms of climate, that we perhaps have missed many opportunities by looking at it only or primarily from a perspective of energy. So that is one of the points that I really bring home in this book, that when it comes to climate change, we have thus far neglected the role of functioning ecosystems in climate regulation. And the reindeer are a perfect example of that, because as it turns out, the reindeer, even in large numbers, or perhaps especially in large numbers, are not harmful to the landscape that they live on, but rather they're the, the large herds moving across the, the landscape are beneficial. And in terms of maintaining the climate, their behavior on the landscape actually maintains the, the cold in their climate. In summer herding, the, the summer grazing, they are 
eating the, they're browsing among the, the trees and the brush that are beginning to grow more as the land warms. But by controlling the dark green vegetation, they are creating a situation where there's more reflectivity. The albedo, the, the, that reflects the heat as opposed to the dark green vegetation that absorbs the heat. Similarly, in the winter grazing, they are pressing down the snowpack that was actually insulating the soil from the deep cold. So that helps maintain the permafrost. So I, I invite people in terms of climate to look in terms of landscapes and creating the conditions for these landscapes to continue to regulate climate and to restore these landscapes that are landscapes that are damaged to bolster climate regulation. Hugely important and presumably the same sort of situation in, in the Cairngorms with UM and even though, you know, possibly haven't got quite as much snow, the, the reindeers are actually doing that very important job. You said you had a, a kind of maximum number for the land available, but they're they're living at one with their with their environment, aren't they? And keeping it in balance, in ecological balance. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's a slightly different picture up with us as well in that we do have, it's sort of, it's a pocket herd, you know, it's, it's not in any way near the sort of the larger numbers that you'd find on Scandinavian, you know, stretches. But um, we also um, supplement our herd with an artificial diet, partly due to bribery. We also have the sort of tourism element where people are coming in. So we have a very uh, honed herd that aren't migrating quite as, other reindeer in Norway, Sweden would be doing. Um, so yeah, it's different, but you're, you're still getting the same behaviours as the other reindeer. But yeah, we, we are manipulating their behaviour perhaps more than, than you'd find elsewhere. It's just not the same size of space. So yeah, the, the number as well, that 150 is, I'm not sure when and who it was that just sort of decided that that was the peg, but it's essentially because we're in the Cairngorms National Park, it's, that was just a figure that was, that was reached by someone for some reason and it's just and it's just stuck to that so i'm not sure how much evidence would back that up as to why that that number mm. is is what it is but yeah planet pod is sponsored by akil management sustainability consultancy providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero for more visit akilmanagement.com One of the, one of the things then that your herd uh, is able to provide is that sort of up close and personal relationship yeah. with people, and obviously you know the, those people that are working with the, with the herd day in day out, you know your your colleagues so on, but you know the visitors, and obviously there is this there's a huge ecotourism attraction, I guess, to, to coming and and being in Scotland in general, but also being amongst the herd. I mean, what sort of reaction do you get from people when they? If they've never encountered a reindeer before, you know, how do they react to them and, and what's their sort of responses? Everybody loves reindeer. Um, and, you know, it's, it is one of those things that because they, they, they kind of fall into that mythical creature kind of category, especially, I think, in the UK. Um, you, it's a funny attitude you get initially, but then I think once you break that initial Rudolph association, people are just fascinated about learning about them they're such a special animal in in that they are the only animal really that that fill that space between wildness in nature 
and that deep rooted connection to human survival as well. And I think that's what makes them so significant because we've never in the history of domestication of the reindeer have never penned it. And, and like you were saying, Judith, uh, with, um, you know, you, you don't have that, you don't study the reindeer in a, in a box or in a small space because you can't, because they are a part of that wider space, that wider wilderness. And therefore, you know, that's what makes them so special, I think, to me. Um, and, and I think the people, when they come to visit the reindeer, it's, it's great to be able to sort of show them that or share that with them. And I think that's what they come, most visitors come away with after having visited with some preconception. They come away thinking, wow, that's an animal that is totally unique. In the, and we've just managed to sort of enter its wilderness and and seen it. That's got to be really special. It's something which is not not everybody has obviously has the opportunity to experience. And in fact, so few people sadly have the opportunity to experience anything remotely approaching sort of wilderness. And we're not suggesting that the Cairngorms are absolute wilderness, but they are. You know, they're as close as many of us certainly in the UK Good. will, will yeah. come to. It. Can I just ask you another thing? You mentioned clicking. Now I know what clicking is, and I know what a reindeer's click is like. But just tell us about clicking, because that to me that's such a a fascinating thing about reindeer yeah it's one of the um very clever adaptations i'm always just amazed by by the the biology of the reindeer they're constantly saving energy like yeah so it's ironic i guess that they're in a, in a landscape that competes with green energy because as an animal they are probably the most efficient animal i've i've come across um they're all about saving energy they obviously live in some pretty brutal climates for for the winter times. So the clicking is an adaptation which has evolved essentially to save them from losing heat through their through their mouth. Other herd animals would call to one another, um, but the reindeer will just have an involuntary noise, which is a clicking caused by a, a sort of a tendon clicking over a bone. It's in the heel, and it just makes a sound as they walk, and it would be to the untrained ear it just sounds like you're all your reindeer are arthritic or something like what's happened to their knees but no they're just um clicking away and it just means that it's a blizzard out there they can't see one another um they don't have to cool constantly losing heat from their mouths so they will just follow the sound of the click close their eyes and walk on and just be able to stay together as a herd which is obviously essential for for the welfare of the herd so that's why they click, but it's just a, another great way that they have adapted to survive such extreme climates. And yeah, amazing that adaptation that animals have over a long period of time. And sometimes it happens more quickly, doesn't it? Because they respond to to the introduction of yeah. other. Animals. I'm thinking about the the introductions of apex predators and some of the um, examples across the world where we've had rewilding and we've reintroduced a species and how that's affected the other species and how they in turn have affected the landscape. Do you? You ask us in your book to look more closely, creatively and open-heartedly at our relationship with animals. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what I, what I mean is that sometimes, well, we look at animals from our perspective and with our own biases. So, for example, we think that if an animal hasn't always been in a landscape, that the animal doesn't belong there. So an example that I have in the book is in Australia there are wild donkeys. Now, donkeys were not always in Australia, but rather they were brought there as pack animals. And then with, um, you know, motorized trucks, et cetera, they didn't need the donkeys to do the work. So, the, and donkeys actually live a long time, often up more than 40 years. So 
you know, there were all these donkeys around that no one was doing anything with. And then they formed their own packs or herds and, and they made a life for themselves in the outback of Australia. So many governments are trying to eradicate them. However, what many people who look at things from an ecological perspective, they see that actually these donkeys are filling an important ecological niche. So Australia lost its large animals in the Pleistocene era. I mean, there were there were there was such an incredible menagerie of huge animals, um, wombats the size of elephants, and you know, just these animals were hunted out. No one's or mostly hunted out. Perhaps there was some change in the climate forty thousand years ago. But anyway, so Australia doesn't have large animals like that. So these donkeys were taking that role of large herbivores. They are managing the brush, like after the rainy season, you might get a lot of growth of green and then the land dries out and then you get these huge fires. But one farmer in particular has come to see that his donkeys were actually an important ally in fighting wildfires. So if we kind of stop looking at, uh uh-oh, no, these animals, aren't strictly Australian animals, we need to eradicate them to actually, what role are they playing in the landscape? And is that a beneficial role? And can we live in harmony with these animals? Because there's a reason that these animals were thriving there, because there was a need for them. So we need to develop a much more open, symbiotic relationship with with the the animals and the creatures in in our environment, don't we? We need to be aware of what role they have. And we do have invasive species and we have them here in the UK. We have the invasive um, ladybird. We're at risk of having the, you know, the invasive wasp, so the Asian hornet. So we, we have invasive species and when they come in and they do damage, we need to control those. But where we've got an established longer term, perhaps if you like more historic species that's adapted to the climate, they have a really key role, don't they, in keeping that balance and preventing soil erosion or preventing some form of the negative impacts of climate change. Right. So I think it is helpful to look in terms of ecological function. How is this working? And it's a real challenge because conditions are changing And so new creatures and new plants are coming in and to really look at this critically from a perspective of, is this working? How is this working? What are the implications before we rush to eradicate? And just one example of eradication that we cannot seem to learn lessons from is the the incredible use of pesticides in farming. Because what happens is that in eradicating the pests, they're also eradicating the predators. And then what happens, you know, the insect predators and most insects are preying on other insects. And what happens is that it's the most kind of biologically simple creature that the pioneer species that come in first, and then there are no predators to control them. So we need to really, I think, widen our lens and, and look at the whole ecology of a place and where organisms are fitting in and how they fit into the dynamics before we jump to eradicate. And I think there's something that we, we certainly have seen uh, in a number of cases. I mean, we had, the, again, the privilege of going to the Nepa State and, and uh, talking to, to Izzy Tree 
who, as you know, with, with her husband, Charlie Burrell, have done a fantastic job at, the, at rewilding the Nepa state. And of course, they've got a really good understanding, I think, of the ecology and the natural ecology and, and what the damage pesticides had done to that particular um, bit of landscape. And although, you know, they found it very challenging to farm that anyway, but actually having left the, let the land do its own thing effectively for a number of years, you know, suddenly the soil that was unmanageable and was clay sodden was aerated by earthworms that they never thought would appear within the sort of the timescale they're talking about. Uh, obviously, they introduced, you know, long haul cattle, Exmoor ponies, Tamworth pigs, so that, you know, they replaced the sort of, you know, the megafauna of the oric, the, 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 the tarpan, the wild boar. So they, they didn't use the same creatures, but they use sort of a, a, the modern day replacement, as it were. And and lo and behold, you know, they've got a fantastic, uh, you know, a recovery of that land. It, uh, they haven't put it back to being arable, and I don't think their intention is to do so. But it's perfectly possible that you could go through that cycle of rewilding for a period of years, using the land for, for productive purposes, and then rewild again, you know. So, I mean, I think maybe we've just completely lost sight of that sort of the, the natural cycle of things. Right. And one thing that I think is very positive is that people are recognizing what beaver can do for the landscape, because that's a perfect example of an animal that had, well, many farmers consider the beavers pests. And of course, they were almost hunted out for their beautiful fur, their, their lovely coats um, to make hats and coats for humans. And how it's not that beaver appear where there is water, rather water appears where there are beaver. And people are recognizing that. And I think that's a really positive thing. And, and, and people recognizing what beaver can do for the landscape opens up their eyes to what other animals can do, including cattle, which are universally vilified for what they do for the environment. But that's really a function. Any any damage done by cattle is a function of their management by humans. And I think it's important that we understand that and that those same animals managed differently can greatly enhance the ecology. And I have seen landscapes that have come back beautifully, landscapes that had been, been damaged, desertified landscapes completely without biodiversity, and then they just become beautiful and abundant when there are cattle on the land managed appropriately and holistically. Mm. That's the key, isn't it? It's the, it's the appropriateness and the way of management. So not having, you know, huge herds that are just kept indoors or, or, or domesticated purely for meat and milk and actually having that balance. We're massive beaver fans on Palanic Pod, I have to say. Um, you know, we had Derek and his beavers back and uh, it's, it's, it's an endless topic of fascination, I think, for, for UK listeners, the, the, the return of the beaver to the UK rivers. Um, and interestingly enough, something that farmers are supporting, because very often... Some of these conversations we have around rewilding and balance and ecological balance are with people who who tend to think the way we do and we tend to be in an echo chamber we don't always hear from farmers whose responsibility is food production or or land management but more and more i think in the uk particularly there's a movement amongst farmers to understand and recognise that that balance is key, that a little bit of rewilding is important, that wild margins help insects and native populations of insects that keep down, you know, pests. And so I think we're beginning to relearn some of those appreciations and those skills. Um, and that's absolutely crucial if we're going to manage our own food supply 
effectively as our populations continue to grow and we're going to make the best of the land isn't it so that element of sustainable agriculture when we take farmers with us on this journey is really really important I think. Yes absolutely I agree and I know many farmers here in the U.S. and in Mexico that actually judge their success not necessarily by the yield or not by measuring how much carbon is in their soil or whatever, but the biodiversity that they see around them. Because as one farmer here in Vermont put it, that when he sees more butterflies, that's an indicator of the health of the landscape. So he he knows that something is going right. And one group of farmers or ranchers that I visited in Mexico, the, there's an alliance between bird conservation organizations and ranchers because the bird conservation people realized that when the land is managed holistically for cattle, what's good for cattle, you know, managed this way is good for the birds. So it's all about maintaining the health of the whole landscape. Yeah, it's that whole ecosystems approach that we need, isn't it? Um, just coming back to you talking about the reindeer herd uh, and, and as you say we shouldn't really associate always associate reindeer with Rudolph and his red nose but of course we are approaching the Christmas period uh, and for many people you know they will want to see see reindeer but how have how has the herd and how have your visitors been affected by the you know the COVID crisis you must have had a significant downturn in the number of people visiting. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we were closed for uh, much of the summer. Um, when we reopened, visitors actually, you know, they, they picked up again. We did have quite a strong number returning, um, but obviously with all the restrictions in place, reduced numbers for sure, uh, different booking system. But no, it's, it's been okay. Like, I think it's just been quite a quiet year for us. Obviously, we've not had as many people working with the reindeer. Um, the reindeer have been actually spending much more time out on the free range because the visits to our hill enclosure have not been happening over that long summer season so um they've they've come back strong as ever um looking really fit and healthy so yeah it's been a really good carving so yeah it's been a really good year for the reindeer and i guess you know less good for the, the visitor numbers but and, 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 and no, people okay. can't get to scotland to see them can they see them online are your reindeers available on uh, the web? they yeah i would uh, recommend checking the facebook page we're often updating um the sort of the day-to-day ongoings of the herd um and yeah and our website it blogs yeah we keep keep up with the blogging kangolmaindeer.co.uk um but yeah there's also i think we've had a lot of um filming this year from channel four so there'll be a on channel four christmas eve i believe it's uh, possibly at seven o'clock they've they've titled it a baby reindeer's first christmas <laughs> will be um will be on TV Christmas Eve so you can see a bit about the herd there and it's sort of just following one of our calves in particular called Holy Moly. It's <laughs> really exciting. And, um, it's yeah so that'll be on TV reindeer. so you can see us there yeah megastar reindeer for sure yeah. Well, we will definitely look out for that and it's been lovely to have a catch-up from absolutely reindeer so thank you em and judith thank you so much there's so much more in your beautiful book the reindeer chronicles which people can get from chelsea green publishing and we'll put the details on the website um so thank you so much for joining us and and um i might ask if i could before we say goodbye can you leave us with any any iota of hope and are you hopeful about the state of, of the world moving forward into 2021 in terms of, of the environment and our ecological state of being, or, or is it really just a bit more gloom and despair? Well, I think, I mean, the topic that we're discussing is 
people's desire to connect with nature. And what I would encourage people to do is to know that that we can restore our landscapes and our ecosystems. And that is the theme of the book. And that this is not making big news, but all over the world, people are regenerating their landscapes in all different kinds of ecosystems, including some of the harshest. And to leave you with with knowing that we are about to enter the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. So there will be more ideas about how you can engage with that, more suggestions on how to support it, and just more examples of it happening because I'm committed to getting the word out about ecosystem restoration because how can people know what to do and, and engage with that hope and, and, um, and different projects if we don't even know that it's possible, but it's well, possible everywhere. That's so good to hear. And, and hopefully there's another book in there and then we can have you back when it's written. So there's those are encouraging notes to, to take us into the Christmas period. So thank you, Judith, for being with us. Um, and thank you, Em. Um, and Jim, it's been great to have you, um, Mike's side for a change. Well, thank you very much indeed. I think I might just, uh, you know, maybe sort of muscle in and, uh, you know, who knows? You could become the producer. No, 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 hang on. I'm not sure it's that great, really. You know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a look back. No, it's been wonderful. And thank you. And a huge thank you to our listeners who stuck with Planet Pod. Um, and we're well over 100 programmes now. And we really appreciate your support. Um, we're about to launch a Patreon page. So you can you can support us that way. You can visit our website, theplanetpod.com and catch up on episodes. You can also get a copy of the fabulous Planet Pod 2021 calendar with photos um, by Jim. And it is truly a thing of beauty, entirely sustainable printed on sustainable paper with vegan ink um, and even has a picture of a reindeer in it so um so don't miss that if you have a late christmas present to buy catch one from the planet pod website and all it remains for me to say is have a happy christmas and stay safe and keep all those you love safe too and we'll be back in january with a whole new series so thank you and goodbye planet pod is brought to you by akil management my thanks to our producer jim haywood and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.